Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sophie Bjork-James, an assistant professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University. She's here with us today to talk about white evangelicals and the right wing. Sophie, thanks so much for being here. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So Sophie, for our listeners, as they know, I typically like to start off with a pretty big question to kind of get the ball rolling. So I wanted to ask you, why does studying religion matter, specifically Christianity, when we're thinking about and studying the far right? Great question. uh, And and a really important one. And I kind of, for me, I stumbled into becoming a religious studies scholar in that my primary interests are about race, gender, and politics. And so I was very interested in in developing a project studying the religious right, because at the time, and this was over 10 years ago, there was very little discussion about the relationship of race and specifically whiteness with evangelicalism. And for me, I saw them as inseparable. Uh, you know, race, gender, sexuality, and evangelicalism, evangelical politics in particular. Uh, And so I began studying um, evangelicals through an interest in race and gender, and then was realized very quickly how um, religion is often neglected by, it's often siloed. And so in in terms of um, academics and studies, where people who study religion often tend to, or can, uh, tend to ignore questions of politics, uh, gender, and race. Um, and But then people who study uh, gender, ra- race, uh, and politics can often ignore religion. And so they're, but so oftentimes they're really inseparable. I mean, I, I, how I understand the kind of contemporary religious right is that they formed to defend Christian interests that were explicitly racial. And so for them, they understand themselves as defending a, what they call like a biblical worldview. Um, but that's, you know, inseparable from the history of white supremacy in the United States and just so happens to also um, defend the, the social order that privileges white people. Thank you for that really great overview, Sophie. And I want to just drill down a little bit on this idea about race. This is something that I study as well, race and evangelical politics. And what does race have to do with the way evangelicals engage in politics, specifically white evangelicals? And how has this really changed over time? For me, this question really goes back to the 1970s, this really pivotal time. It's the decade after the civil rights movement has really transformed U.S., culture, right? It's transformed uh, U.S. policy, law, culture. Uh, there's, um, in so many ways, it ended the era of at least formal legal segregation. And so in the 1970s, the uh, conservative movement in the United States is in shambles. The, you know, it had been led by, there was, you know, different segments of it, but, you know, economic, um, you know, it was really associated with either economic elitism or with racism, overt racism and pro-segregation stances. And so what ends up happening in the late 1970s is a group of evangelicals. um, It's really a group of political actors uh, start part, um, start kind of lobbying and lobbying evangelicals, certain evangelical leaders, specifically Gerald, Jerry Falwell to become active in politics. 
Uh, and there's a lot of resistance. So uh, to evangelicals seeing themselves as political um, because of a long, a long history of evangelicals and fundamentalists kind of being uh, kind of rejecting secular culture and kind of having more of a parallel cultural practices and seeing politics as um, something that kind of goes against their religious worldview. Um, but what's important is that before, like, like be, be, from the middle of 1970s before, white evangelicals were actually not affiliated with one specific party. There's quite a bit of political diversity. Uh, and what happens is that um, the first national religious right campaign was actually to defend segregated Christian schools from governmental interference. So the, you know, Brown v. Board of Education in the 1960s uh, criminalizes um, overt segregation. Hundreds of Christian school, private Christian schools are formed mainly across the South to allow for a de facto segregation so that white parents can pull their, ch- their white children out of public schools and put them in these segregated Christian schools. They were called segregation academies. So under Jimmy Carter, uh, the IRS started going after these schools and making sure that they were um, desegregated in practice. <laughs> and so, and that is what sparked the first national religious right campaign that was very successful. So there were, um, you know, a variety of groups that formed to fight what they described as secular imposition into conservative Christian values. They didn't say they were pro-segregation, but the fact is they were fighting desegregation efforts and the impact was defending segregated schools. Um, They won uh, very successfully uh, the 1980 um, Republican National Platform included a specific commentary about the importance of, you know, keeping education choices open for um, individual parents. Um, and it was part of Reagan's platform that he was brought into office on. Uh, and, you know, very explicitly, the moral majority, the first, you know, which um, really transformed evangelical identity uh, into a more political, explicitly political conservative movement formed out of the dregs of those Christians, private, those uh, efforts to defend private Christian schools. So the very formation of the religious right, race was incredibly central, right? And what's important is they didn't understand it as fighting um, anti-racism or fighting uh, desegregation. They understood it as a as defending a conservative Christian value that just so happened to be segregated. Um, so it's at the center, but also kind of disavowed. No, I, I really like that phrasing that you use, Sophie, of how it's at the center and they found ways to talk about it, that it's it's part of a conservative Christian identity, that it's not really about race in quotes. It's just this idea about what should a conservative Christian world look like. I did want to ask you, what are the tensions that have emerged within evangelicalism more broadly around race, particularly thinking about the growing numbers of Black evangelicals, Latino evangelicals, that this is really perhaps challenging the predominance of white evangelical ideas and theories about what the world should look like, but still within this sort of conservative Christian worldview? Right. And the other thing that's challenging it is, right, it's explicitly patriarchal. And so it's about, you know, racial, but also um, gendered, right, in terms of a very clear gender hierarchy is at the center. And so 
Um, there's, you know, really incredibly broad spread, uh, campaigns, um, trying to shed light on sexual abuse victims within the evangelical church that have really been, um, rocking the evangelical world in terms of, uh, you know, lots of controversy there that I don't know what the impacts will be. And some women, um, are leaving the evangelical church because of that. And there's also, you know, increasing numbers of especially young people um, who are supporting LGBTQ rights. And that's also, a po- you know, starting to challenge um, evan- uh, kind of the evangelical hierarchy. I mean, so the, uh, you know, the kind of contemporary religious right forms in the 1970s um, with, as I see it, and as a way to oppose um, civil rights gains and kind of establish their own political power. Um, I mean, that's changed over time. Um, I think that what has happened, what, like in, in, I did research in Colorado Springs, which is a center of, kind of evangelical um, organizations, large churches. And, you know, the, the evangelicals that I got to know there who were, um, the city was growing really rapidly. So there was people from like all, mainly the Sun Belt, So Southern, you know, Southern California, um, the South, um, and the South and the Southeast, uh, you know, but they really understood themselves as like the colorblindness was incredibly important to them. They wanted to see themselves as not explicitly racist. Um, but you know, the, the, the way that their theology is lived is that structural uh, relationships become invisible. So the, there's a theological emphasis on relationships, on personal relationships, and that you know everyone is supposed to have a personal relationship with Jesus, but that that translates into you know you can't actually help people, like the government can't actually help people. So there's broad spread. Um, disagreement with public welfare programs or even like support for homeless people, uh, even like food programs for children, right? Because they would see the government can't provide that personal relationship that is like at the center of evangelical worldview. And so what that means is that they can't understand structural racism and how that actually, you know, impacts individual lives, including their own. So you know, I'm a social scientist. And like, if we look at the data, uh, we can see based on virtually every measure of social inequality, that racism continues to structure US society, right? That that means like, it shapes everything from how early, like whether or not one is likely to be born early, um, to whether or not one is likely to be stopped by the police, right? To whether or not, um, you know, like, uh, one is likely to get a, um, like how, how highly their house will be valued, um, to how, how long someone is likely to live right across the entire spectrum, racism continues to structure us society, but that takes a kind of structural understanding of society, which evangelicalism, uh, explicitly denies through privileging individual relationships. And, you know, understanding the history of whiteness in the United States, like that cannot, that individualism cannot be understood outside of that history, right? Which, um, you know, is a, is a way to obscure the actual reality. Absolutely. And Sophie, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about not just the research that you did, but 
Who are some of the key players within white evangelical politics, particularly now? You, you talked a little bit about the 70s, and I think some of our listeners may be familiar with the Jerry Falwells, the Moral Majority, those sort of big Reagan-era names. But evangelical politics have, have changed quite a bit since the 70s and 80s. So who are we thinking about now? Who are the kind of key players that interested observers should keep their eye on? Right. I mean, there was Jerry Falwell Jr. has been incredibly powerful until like he, you know, there's this kind of uh, incredible scandal of involving a pool boy that had a like long-term sexual relationship with his wife, or maybe it was very complicated. Um, but I think he has kind of fallen out of favor um, with evangelicals. But I mean, it's really the Family Research Council in Washington, D.C. and Focus on the Family in Colorado Springs. I mean, Focus on the Family um, was led by James Dobson for decades, and he left that organization to start another. Um, And uh, so it became a little bit less political, but it's still really a center of white evangelical um, culture. Uh, and then, but it's really the Family Research Council in Washington, D.C. They organize an annual um, value voter summit that brings together um, all of the leadership of the religious right across the country um, to set a, an agenda. Um, and the racial politics of that is are really interesting because, um, you know, for, I mean, for over a, a decade, I mean, I think they with under under the Obama administration, they felt very. There's a lot of insecurity about being able to, um, you know, have their criticisms of Obama without being called racist. But but there has been this insecurity about you know how do you have a majority white, almost exclusively white movement, you know, criticizing, um, especially under Obama, a black president and a. Um, without being called racist. And so there has been this like very concerted effort to bring in people of color in the leader in leadership. And so what I found when attending the value voter summit is that there's often more people of color on stage than there are in the audience. Right. And so it's not like they want to embrace, I mean, some of them I'm sure will embrace explicit racism, but many of them want to embrace more of a colorblindness and, you know, will really support, especially African-Americans who, you know, support their agenda, which is limited government, um, supporting patriarchy and opposing LGBTQ rights. Uh, And so they're very happy to welcome, you know, a diverse range of people who all believe the exact same beliefs that they believe. And those beliefs really cannot be understood outside of the history of um, white supremacy in the United States and especially in suburbanization, right? That, uh, you know, the kind of post-World War II suburbanization, which created these uh, white enclaves that were very homogeneous, that stripped um, European immigrants to the United States from their ethnic context. and really what they valued was the nuclear family. And that is the heart of white evangelicalism is this embrace of, it's a very suburban ethic. It's a very, you know, it's about, uh, you know, kind of the nuclear family ideal. No, that's, that's really helpful, Sophie. And you touched on this a little bit, but I did want to drill down on some of the key issues for white evangelicals now. I think many of our listeners are familiar with the anti-LGBTQ position of many of these 
actors and organizations, the anti-abortion, the sort of patriarchal hierarchy and the, and the particular family unit emphasis. But are there other key issues for white evangelicals that maybe we're missing in this focus on perhaps just these sort of, as we think of them, the big two that seem to kind of dominate the way that we think about evangelical activism now? Yeah. So I did over a hundred interviews with evangelicals and I would generally end with a question of, uh, you know, what responsibilities do Christians have to society or to politics? And almost every single one ended with, um, people saying like, Oh, well, it's not about prescription. And like, you know, it's not about, you know, it's, it's, this is about my personal faith and my relationships. It's not about politics, but you know, so can't, there'd be this hemming and hawing and they'd be like, okay, but if there were two issues, it'd, it'd be really about marriage and abortion, right? In terms of defending um, heterosexual marriage and opposing abortion. So those are kind of the, you know, the keystones of evangelical politics, um, without a doubt. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of Christian Zionism is very central to evangelical politics. And um, in that uh, there's a, you know, it manifests in different ways, but um, the there's a belief that, you know, like Israel has to be the domain, like um, has to be a Jewish state in order for Jesus to return, which is very central to their worldview is that they believe that, um, you know, Jesus is going to return at some point and um, create and the world will disappear <laughs> Uh, and that, that, you know, people who are born again will end up in an everlasting heaven. Um, but so Zionism, like Christian Zionism is actually really central to a lot of evangelical politics. Um, and then, uh, with that is, um, you know, is that the white evangelicals are the largest group that disavows the reality of anthropogenic climate change. Uh, and, what I found is that that very much is in line with, I mean, on the one hand, climate change is a structural issue, right? It involves kind of an analysis about like economics and resource extraction and um, changes to the atmosphere that um, is very easy for evangelicals to disavow. Um, and it also, you know, the, the thing is, is that the kind of mainstream evangelical eschatological view or like view of the end times is that um the earth is really disposable and i've had people explicitly say that this is a disposable planet right this is um you know a sinking ship right and like the only salvation it's not to fix this place right and it's not to um you know deal with the climate crisis right it's this idea that you know this is a sinking ship and this is a disposable planet and therefore what we need to do is save individual lives, right? And so, I mean, that really shifts the entire ethic away from, you know, like, you know, everything from making sure people have enough food to eat, right? To making sure that the planet will be livable in, a, in 150 years. Like those, those issues become like less significant than this kind of individual salvation, but that that ability to kind of conceptualize individual souls as separate from bodies is a, has a very long history in European thought. And, you know, I think also really speaks to the way that, you know, many white people in the United States have been able to be distanced from um, the climate catastrophe and, and from environmental destruction. Um, you know, the, 
environmental racism has ensured that, you know, most of the heavily polluting industries are in communities of color. Um, And so, you know, I think that that is another issue in terms of, you know, I think race um, in particular whiteness has been very central to their environmental ethic. Um, and there's people that are within evangelicalism that are trying to challenge that uh, as a justice issue. And it'll be interesting to see where that goes moving forward. I, it's so interesting that you you bring up this sort of apocalyptic salvation aspect of evangelicalism. This is one of those elements that I think is most difficult for people who haven't studied evangelicals or haven't grown up in the community to really sort of understand the disposability element of the planet of saying, you know, this is not what we're what we're fighting for. This is not the item of our focus. And it can be quite, I think, difficult for outside observers who haven't necessarily studied or grown up in that environment to really process the the seriousness with which they they view that and take that as as genuine, you know, that sort of advocacy. So I wanted to ask you with the time that we have left. Where do you see this movement going? I know you're an anthropologist and I'm a historian and we do not future predict, but where do you think that this movement is going to evolve over the next five years, particularly you know, the relationship that the religious right had with the Trump administration? Right. Without, without predicting, I mean, I, I, I'm, I am really concerned because what I saw under, with, with I, I think we can't talk about like Trump administration and Trump rhetoric outside of social media and the ability for like those messages to spread. And also for, uh, the, you know, more overtly racist (laughs) corners of social media to like end up spreading, um, more broadly. But I mean, what I saw is that there is much more of an embrace of explicit racism, um, you know, explicit anti-immigrant sentiment, um, that, um, in particular, um, that I think is, could be really dangerous moving forward. And so, I mean, I think that there's different trends happening and I'm not sure what, what is actually going to happen. You know, we mentioned that, you know, there is, there's a series of controversies that have happened around, you know, um, sexual abuse scandals. Uh, there's, you know, a whole movement of moms in particular, moms of, um, LGBTQ kids that, um, are spread out across in every, in every corner of evangelical America, um, who are choosing to not disavow those children. I mean, for decades, they've, that's been their only choice. And often still, like if, you know, their, their choice is often to embrace their, um, queer children or to be ostracized, like to, sorry, to disavow them or to be ostracized. Those are the choices. Um, but there's a whole movement of moms that are starting to challenge the heterosexism at the center of evangelicalism, which would also then change its racial politics because it would start destabilizing the emphasis on hierarchies. Um, and younger people are leaving, have been leaving evangelicalism um, in droves for decades. You know, they often see that the kind of religious right embrace of their parents as you know, a form of like, as, as, as something that isn't actually that significant. Many of them have spent time abroad doing missionary work and seeing poverty. And then they come back home and they, they see their parents as just defending their own lifestyle is how it's been explained to me. Um, and so there's a variety of tensions. I think that, you know, there's tensions around, uh, you know, there are, there are a number of, um, there, 
there, there was an increasing number of African Americans who identified as evangelical and attended large evangelical churches, uh, that there's been huge tensions, um, since Trump was elected, um, uh, with, with, with African American evangelicals and, you know, with the increasing, I mean, I think one of the bigger, biggest issues is about what will happen with like Latino or Latinx evangelicals moving forward. And will they be kind of brought into the broader conservative movement? And can that, can the, the movement expand to be less explicitly, um, rooted in whiteness, right? Or can it expand its understanding of whiteness to include, Latinx like evangelicals um, or not. Um, so I think that, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of possibilities and I think I'm, I'm not going to say which one. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I think there's just a lot of different possibilities for moving forward. Well, Sophie, thank you so much for being here and for our listeners, where can they read more of your work? Where can they find your research? Where can they find your book? Where can they contact you? Yeah, so uh, my my book is available, The Divine Institution. It's available on um, bookshop.com, anywhere books are sold. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at sbjorkjames, or um, my website is sophiebjorkjames.com, and that's B-J-O-R-K-J-A-M-E-S. Uh, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you so much for being here. This has been another episode of Right Rising. We'll see you all next time. Mm-hmm.